This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, let's talk uh, about um, something that's been making headlines really across the country. It's a, it's a deadly drug, not just a deadly drug. It's one of the deadliest drugs to hit the streets. And it's really sweeping across, you know, Ontario, B.C., Alberta. But it's starting to make inroads to cities like Hamilton. And I'm talking about fentanyl, which is uh, said to be 100 times more lethal than morphine. And if you've ever had morphine, maybe in surgery, I mean, or for an injury, you know how strong that stuff is. But according to the Ontario Chiefs of Police, a new bootleg form of fentanyl is also in the mix. And it's killing people. In 2014, in Ontario, because we don't have numbers here in Hamilton yet, but in Ontario, in 2014, 120 people died from the drug. But those numbers in just a year kind of spiked up to 154. And now uh, emergency professionals say here in Hamilton, the number of deaths because of fentanyl and this knockoff drug, the, the number is expected to be very high. And as I said, you know, B.C., Alberta, especially Alberta, for some reason, Calgary has seen a huge spike in fentanyl deaths. And so it becomes more problematic than you get the counterfeit part of the drug in, you know, pill or powder form. And it's, you know, it mirrors other opiates like Oxy, Percocet. And now police say they're starting to see fentanyl mixed in with things like heroin and coke or even the party drug MDMA. So if it's so dangerous, why do people take such risks? And I've got to ask, you know, how easy is it to get? Where is it sold? And what are officials doing to combat it? I know here in Hamilton, Public Health gives out uh, kits. They're uh, called uh, Naloxon kits. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, But they've given out 600 to prevent folks from overdosing. It gives people enough time to at least get uh, a needle into their arm and, and, and buy themselves some time before they get to the hospital. 150 of those have been refilled, so it it is having an impact. Let's bring in our first guest to talk about this drug and why we're seeing it. He's Joshua Montgomery. He's the Director of Operations at Bellwoods Health Service. Hello there. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Thanks, Alex. So Bellwoods is is, um, it's a facility where people go to when dealing with addiction, correct? That is correct. Yeah, we're we're a privately funded uh, addictions facility. We we treat all sorts of addictions, uh, as well as compulsive behaviors and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Describe to me, because your experience would show it, what does a fentanyl uh, user look like? Like, wh- what is it about this drug that is maybe so different from others, and and why do people like it? Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of layers to that question. I think, you know, when, when you say, what does a fentanyl user look like? Um, you know, I think people have this idea that a drug user is, is this uh, individual that's on the street, that, um, you know, that they don't have a job and, and so on. And we kind of create this, this, this negative image of, of a drug user. But a drug user actually is, is, looks just like you and I. Uh, you know, 76% of people in the workforce have an addiction issue. Um, you know, or sorry, 76% mm-hmm. of people with an addiction issue are in the workforce. Yeah, I mean, uh, look at Rob Ford. I mean, he was a high-profile mayor of Toronto, and he it, succumbed to it. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, it, it's hard to really say what, what an addict looks like. Uh, they come in all shapes, forms, sizes, races, religions, socioeconomic statuses. Uh, now, when looking at, uh, when, when you say about what makes fentanyl so appealing, um, when we look at opiate addicts, they're, they're more often than not looking for heroin or uh, OxyContin, things of that nature. Fentanyl has become very popular, not necessarily by the user uh, looking for fentanyl per se, um, but it's become very popular from the individual selling drugs. Uh, you can add fentanyl to, to a mixture of heroin, to, uh, you know, you can lace it in with, uh, if you're pressing OxyContin pills, and what this does is it increases the addictiveness of the drug that you're selling. Therefore, creating, you know, kind of that uh, more of a supply chain, I guess. You know, you're creating more business for yourself. So, unfortunately, uh, you know, in the illicit drug trade, it is very appealing. Is it easy to get? Uh, as far as its accessibility, we're seeing that it is becoming more and more accessible. Um, it, it's very cheap to produce. Uh, you only need very small quantities. So when looking at, let's say, um, you know, from the perspective of a chemist, you need like two grain, uh, granulars, kind of a, the size of, of, of a grain of salt. You need two, two of those to, in a mixture, uh, you know, in a batch that can be much larger and can yield a huge profit margin. Um, and so when you're looking at something so small that can be so potent, you can imagine, you know, the possibilities of, of, 
you know, financial gains in, the, in those terms. And, and so what is it, as I understand, th- this drug initially was made, I think, experimentally by a Canadian physicist, correct? A number, a number of years ago, correct. Like just for the kicks of it. And then I, I don't think it was like meant to put it out there, but it was done so. Uh, it was like, oh, wow, he kind of stumbled upon this drug. A- and then it kind of went away. So how did it reemerge? Uh, it reemerged uh, because fentanyl is, um, it is a very effective opiate, uh, or it's a synthetic opiate, actually, but it is, it is very effective in pain management. So when we have individuals with chronic pain issues, um, I've seen it in my own experiences, uh, you know, working in the public sector in hospitals, individuals that may have had an amputation that are experiencing phantom pain. Mm-hmm. They've tried all sorts of medications, they've tried all sorts of therapies, and in the end, nothing is working. So they'll go on a fentanyl patch. It's a slow release. It, it, it maintains a steady dose over time, uh, and they change that patch in the morning. Now, these individuals are using it as prescribed. Um, they're not abusing it. Their, their doses may go up, you know, marginally over a, a long period of time. Uh, and so it's very, very effective in pain management where other, uh, you know, other medications may not be, be effective. Um, and so individuals then were starting to recognize, well, fentanyl is very strong and my, you know, somebody has a patch and, or I've tried it from this person. And, and eventually it gains popularity and the illicit drug trade you know, they've, they've got their pulse on all of this. They recognize where the trends are going and, and, you know, how can we increase our profit margin? Are you surprised to see the spikes? I mean, I know Calgary has been grappling with this problem. I think they were kind of the first, and, and I might be wrong on that. You can correct me. But I think they, they've seen a huge spike of this and, and of people dying from this. Where else are we starting to see it? I mean, we're seeing spikes all over the place. I mean, I'm reading news reports out east. I'm reading it in Ontario. I'm reading it in... Um, you know, West, of course, that's where the biggest news comes from because that's where it kind of really originated, you know, where um, it's, it started off in Vancouver and, it, and it's merging east, correct? But it's uh, what I'm really surprised about is how quickly it has spiked. I mean, we always see a trend in, in drug use. You know, in the 80s it was cocaine. You know, in the 90s it's party drugs. And, and you see a rise of that, and it's kind of a steady a steady rise, but uh, fentanyl has certainly spiked very, very rapidly in a very short amount of time, which I, is very scary. Yeah, I mean, look, heroin uh, has also spiked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen increases. Certainly American cities are being hit by it very yeah. hard, but fentanyl seems to be kind of the new kid on the block that if, you, if, if the heroin's not doing it for you, you're jumping in, you know, jumping in to get something more powerful, and fentanyl may be the, the thing for you. But I thought it was in a patch form. But you can get it in pill form, correct? So is it? Get it in pill, powder, patch. Yep. Yeah. And and it's crushed up and mixed with other things, or you take it straight. Yeah, yeah. You can. Uh, a lot of times, users are, are are taking fentanyl and they're not even aware of it. Um, I know <coughs> out west at one of their insights, uh, it's the um, they they've got two legal uh, injection sites in Vancouver, and eighty four percent of the drugs that were brought in there uh, all all tested positive for fentanyl. Um, and, you know, the majority of the users weren't wanting fentanyl in, in their, their heroin or their cocaine. Now, cocaine and crystal meth, they were seeing less of it. But in morphine and heroin, they were finding large traces of, of, of fentanyl. Right, which then brings the user in. They need more. They want more. Exactly. And then they're addicted. And then, and if you don't know what you're buying, so if you were to go out and buy the party drug MDMA, which most people know is Molly, mm-hmm. uh, it could be cut with fentanyl. And would you then become automatically addicted? You may not become automatically addicted. You wouldn't become addicted after, after you know, one, uh, I guess, you know, one, one night of using fentanyl. Uh, but your risk of overdose is certainly extremely high. But what may happen to an, an individual that, you know, with your example of using uh, MDMA that, that's laced with fentanyl, um, that user may uh, want to do, you know, buy it again from that guy because there was something different about that and, you know, and really like, you know, that, that extra euphoric feeling. Um, and prolonged chronic use of that MDMA would certainly, um, I would suspect, evolve in, into an opiate disorder. Yeah, and certainly if you have someone who is new to it or doesn't know it and, and finds himself in a position where they're overdosing and dehydrating, you know, they won't know how to treat it. But, you know, interestingly, you know, fair to point out, drug, drug dealers aren't in the business of warning you what you're taking. They, they want the money and they're going to yeah. sell product. So it's not up to them to warn you, by the way, this is cut with fentanyl. No, and quite the opposite. They wouldn't want to warn you. Um, you know, I, I can't say I've met many drug dealers, but but uh, I, I wouldn't think that they are in the business yeah. of, of being completely transparent. Uh, they want your repeat business, and, and I would suspect that they would do anything to get that repeat business. 
So what are municipalities doing? I mean, I know oftentimes you think the big cities, uh, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, may be the problem zones, but I hear more and more, you know, it becomes townships like Stratford has yeah. problems, Hamilton. Mm-hmm. So it, it really hits, you know, smaller cities much more severely. It does, I, you know, and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, you know, small towns, some people, you know, boredom, boredom is one of the biggest things that we see in addiction, right? And we see that isolation is, is, also, is also huge in addiction. And so when you look at these small towns, kids that, you know, they're connected to media and can see all this wonderful, amazing stuff happening around, you know, around the world or even the city next door, but there isn't really anything that they can connect with in their own little town. Um, you know, teenagers and, and young adults find a way to amuse themselves. And, uh, you know, this can be very appealing. You know, you do it once or twice, and you, go, you know, yeah, it was fun and, and whatnot. And before you know it, you're doing it three, four, ten, twenty times. And, uh, um, and, and that's kind of the thing to do. I, I mean, I grew up in Kitchener, and I recall Stratford was having a huge problem with yeah. crystal meth at, at, when, I was, uh, when I was younger. And it was the people that I knew from Stratford, I mean, that was what they kind of said. We don't really have anything to do yeah. here. Yeah, and I think that's still an issue mm-hmm. in, in those small areas. But, you know, the government's got a really big problem on its hands because opiates have just, everyone just thinks drugs is it's a cocaine or it's heroin. But the, the, the reality is, uh, you know, oxys and Percocets and things like that, these are what people are getting into their system. And they're, they're I think, much more dangerous because we almost accept it because if the doctor tells us to take it, then we've got to pass. But how are they going to deal with, with the increased use of opiates, which are just as dangerous? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I mean, that's, that's a really great question. And, and I think there's so many areas that you, you, you have to consider. You know, how do you deal with this? Do you deal with it on one end when looking at organized crime? Do you also deal with it on the other end of, of prevention, education? You know, there's so many facets to how do we deal with this epidemic? And I don't think there is just one specific answer. I think we have to look at all, all areas and really be strategic about it. And I think we have to be real about it. Um, I think we have to um, have some very challenging and, and courageous conversations. Um, you know, when we look at the, the medical system, I mean, it's a very stressed, burdened system. Yeah. And, and it's, um, you know, that's one area. When we look at, at it's EMS, you know, yeah, we're offering naloxone kits, which is great. That's awesome. And that's, that's one thing that we are doing. But we can't just do one or two things. We, we have to look at all areas that, that are involved in this. And it's, it's a spider web, if, if you will. Yeah, and not assume that the guy doing it or the gal doing it is living uh, in a box, a uh, homeless person. I mean, there are a lot of people wearing business suits, yeah. uh, and very fancy suits with high heels that, that are quietly going and doing these things, and you would never know it. That's right. That's right. And I think awareness for treatment is also a big one. I think, you know, when we look at addictions or mental health, it's been something that's really been kind of pushed to the side and, and not really looked at because it's, there's such a stigma attached to that. And, and I know there's, there's been a lot of efforts, you know, in, in recent years about, you know, reducing that stigma. But I think we need to put more effort into that and, and more awareness into addictions and, and mental health and to let people know that there is the help out there. Yeah, I do agree. And uh, thank you so much for your insight. I really appreciate it. Pardon the pun. But thank you very much, Josh. You're very welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, let's talk some politics. Should we? Shall we? Because, uh, of course, it's across the border, but we're all watching it. It's just the circus you can't take your eyes off. But, uh, you know, call it a pivot. That's what I'm calling it. It was a big pivot, I think, last night, but a chess move, maybe a Hail Mary. Uh, You know, whatever you call it, Donald Trump had a very big day yesterday. I think it was a very good day for him. He owned it. He owned the spotlight. He owned every media news cycle. And I think he trumped Hillary Clinton. All she could do was sit there on the sidelines and criticize and wag her finger and listen to all the emails that are about to come out. He appeared on the world stage. He sat with a leader, you know, a world leader, appearing leaderly. He controlled the narrative. And, and I, he, cl- he clarified his stance. But, you know, not only did he go to Mexico and meet with the president where they discussed that wall, but then he gave a major policy speech on immigration in Arizona. Now, this is a border state to Mexico, and they have a huge real issue with border control. And here's what he told the American people last night. There is only one core issue in the immigration debate, and that issue is the well-being of the American people. Boom. That was like a mic drop moment. Offensive, I'm sure, to many. But there will be an awful lot of Americans who say, yes, that's what I want. 
So here's why I think he's winning. I mean, he is driving the coverage and the conversation. I mean, when have you ever seen a candidate, not a leader, a candidate, deliver a policy speech? A policy speech. This is not sp- this is not state of the union. And here, you know, it was getting major coverage in prime time. I can tell you, it doesn't happen often. But, you know, folks want to know what Trump will say, what he'll do. Will he soften? Will he flip-flop? Will he reverse course on some of the controversial ideas like, oh, yeah, mass deportation? Hell no. (laughs) No. He's talked to his guns and said very clearly, Mexico will pay for a wall and and illegal aliens. Hey, you're out of here. Here's what he said. Most illegal immigrants are lower-skilled workers with less education who compete directly against vulnerable American workers, and that these illegal workers draw much more out from the system than they can ever possibly pay back. Are you offended? He don't care. He doesn't care. He is saying what a lot of people think. And for that... Whether I agree with it or not, he's winning. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, who is a columnist, of course, and former speechwriter to Stephen Harper. So he knows how to craft these things. Michael, I know you are watching the speech. I'm glad to have you on. That's why I reached out and said, I want to hear what you think of Donald Trump's policy speech. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. What'd you think of it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, my husband looked at me at one point and went, wow, this is quite a speech. Yeah, you know what? I've been very critical of Trump for a lot of reasons, many of them quite obvious. But I would have to say, and I agree with you, what you said off the top, the Mexico speech, certainly the whole last-minute trip, the speech, the comments afterwards in Arizona and so forth, overall it was a real success for him. There's no question about that. Like you said, he controlled the narrative, which is something that I think we can both agree that for the last five to six weeks he's basically lost complete control of, with the exception of little bits and pieces here to try to regain his footing on issues like immigration and other things based on his recent staff shuffle and i think that they are also as well this that that those two staff members steve bannon and kelly and conway are basically you know a lot of people weren't sure what would happen when they came in but they're clearly gearing the candidate not only to sort of semi-apologize for some of his comments but they're actually sort of redirecting him to get back onto a strong footing and try to sort of show uh, a positive image of him being a real leader. And that's really what I think the whole Mexico trip was about. I think everyone was completely startled on Tuesday night when they heard it, and I, I, I heard it the same way most did, when I happened to catch his tweet, which is where you usually catch news with Donald Trump, stating that he was going to Mexico and nobody knew what on earth had happened how long this had been planned? Was this suddenly a last-minute thing? Would he have a security detail? Nobody knew how this was going to go, and it was a, a massive, massive roll of the dice. But in the end, ultimately, he came out looking like, as a political candidate, he came out looking more like a leader. And it comes to the point now where Hillary Clinton's campaign is going to have a very difficult time saying, well, could you ever envision Donald Trump on the international stage meeting a world leader from any country and what he would actually do? Well, this is an example he can point to, and actually the message is clear. He can handle it. Yeah, he can handle it. In fact, he drove the conversation because they weren't even supposed to take questions and answers. And he he right. decided to break cro- protocol and start taking you know questions. And he was asked, of course, about the wall, and he said they didn't discuss it. Yeah. And I think behind the scenes, there was a lot of blowback to the president, uh, Enrique uh, Peña Nieto, uh, who came out and said, no, 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 we're not paying for that wall. Well, you know someone's going to pay for that wall. And everyone, I think it's interesting, Michael, um, you know, mocking on Twitter last night this wall that Mr. Trump is going to build with these sensors and light shows. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an Israeli technology. And those walls do exist around Israel. So that's the kind of wall Mr. Trump is talking about. And it can be built. And I think he's quite serious about it. Yeah, I think he's serious about it, too. And you're right. That's actually a good message to sort of juxtapose it with the security wall that Israel has, which, to be fair, also has had a lot of criticism since day one, too. And if a wall is built with Mexico, either the Mexicans paying or whatever happens, there will obviously be criticism of it when it's finally completed. But, yeah, I think he is completely serious. I mean, this is a position that has been on his radar for a little under a year, I guess, in total, 
but there's no question that he's going to do it because he hasn't moved away from it. I agree that there obviously seems to be a little bit of confusion as to what was actually discussed about the wall per se, or at least that Donald Trump comes out and says, well, we didn't talk about the cost of it, whereas Peña Nieto, the Mexican president, said, well, no, we talked about it right off the back as the eyes <laughs> directly said that Mexico won't pay for it. So, you know, there's going to be that little kerfuffle that will probably carry through. But other than that, and other than that little moment, I think that overall Donald Trump just looked more and more like a statesman. He looked very statesmanlike, sitting in front of there, answering questions. And he did discuss the wall, even though it was sort of in a kind of, shall we say, a half-assed manner where he tried to push it as much as he could and just slough through the topic. He did discuss it. He did allude to it. And even when he came back to the United States, he sort of kept on top of it. This is a real issue. This is not something that he's just proposing during the campaign and he's going to get rid of if he becomes president come November. This is something that he plans to do. The mm -hmm. cost of it overall, which I think is the big issue, is really A, nobody knows how much it will cost dollar for dollar, and B, if the costs are very, very high, will the Mexicans be paying for all it or is he going to basically try to drive it and get it from other sources of income that may directly lead to Mexico one way or the other through trade and other things, yeah. or is it going to be some sort of backdoor route where he has to grab up funds from other things. So I don't really know what he's going to do, but there's no question that the wall will be a part of Donald Trump's agenda if he becomes president. Yeah, and I, I mean, he has absolutely doubled down, and so he's won back people like Ann Coulter, who are, you know, are his base, and they're worried yeah. that he's going to soften. But the bottom line is he's, take a, he's taken a very definitive stance on an issue that we laugh about here in Canada, but it's a huge issue in the United States. We don't have that issue, but they've got a real border problem, and they've never solved it. So here you've got this candidate saying, I'll solve it, the wall will be built, and he, I, th I thought it was also very, very powerful of him pulling those mothers out. Some people will say it was like prostituting these mothers, but these are people whose children have been killed by illegal immigrants, the, the ones he wants to deport. And, and he's not talking, he, I mean, the mass deportation, he said day one, you're gone. If you've broken the law, if you've killed someone, if you've hurt somebody, you're gone. I, and I don't know why people are offended by that. If you've come into our country illegally and you're killing people, why would we want to protect you? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Look, in the first place, bringing the mothers out, yes, I know that will obviously irritate certain people's sensibilities, but politics by nature is a game and it is a show. And sometimes it's a show and tell. Yeah, and you want to put certain things on display. I know that it may obviously bother some people, but that's actually how you attract attention and that's how you get your yeah. message forthright and make it very forthright. Having them on based on people who've experienced the problems with this border and the illegal nation and you know the illegal immigrants who have come over which by the way it should be noted and a lot of people don't for some reason that mexico itself has fully acknowledged this for many many years and one of the biggest proponents of breaking down this illegal immigration was actually Vicente Fox, the former yeah. president, so, mm -hmm. you know, who is very critical of Donald Trump on the wall and other issues. So they know what the problem is. But, yeah, I mean, I think that overall a lot of it came out very, very well. I mean, I know some people have come back, and you've probably heard this too, where they're countering a little bit, saying, well, Donald Trump appeared very statesmanlike in Mexico, but the minute he touched down to the United States and spoke in front of all these people in Arizona, I believe it was directly Phoenix, he basically sort of lashed out and became himself again. You know, typically uh, liberals in the media like Dan Rather sort of harped on that a bit. But again, there's a model to be done here. It's not a Jekyll and Hyde candidate we're looking at. There are particular audiences and there are particular ways to handle things. And on the campaign hustings, you have to be more of a populist. You have to have a stronger voice. You have to basically try to show people why your message counts and use a lot of different buzz clips and various other things to produce a strong message that will resonate with your supporters and mm -hmm. with others. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're meeting one-on-one -on -one with a world leader, as Donald Trump did, you have to act in a different manner. You have to be more diplomatic, as I've said before, more statesmanlike, and look like you're sort of confident about yourself acknowledging the good points that he knows from the Mexican people, from the government of Mexico, the president, etc., but realizing behind the scenes that there are going to be a lot of disagreements that they may have to work on for many, many years if Trump becomes president.
But as he's proven over, he doesn't care what Dan Rather thinks. And I don't no, think a lot don't. of people should care what Dan Rather thinks. He's got his own track record. And what I think he has, and he does it all the time, Michael, where he points out the media. They're not going to tell you this. I'm telling you this live. So this is what I'm saying. Don't let them spin it. And good on him for doing that because there's just a, in this particular election, the the partisanship from regular journalists is is so, I mean, I can recognize it, you can recognize it, mm-hmm. but the average person watching doesn't know really what's going on, and he's exposing all that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Look, <clears throat> partisanship in the media has been getting worse and worse over the last, let's be nice and say, two to three decades. Yes. It's really intensified. And in the United States, certainly Americans got very, very used to it during the 2000 presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. It really got very strong at that point. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's ever really weakened, and I don't think it ever will ever again. But there's no question that the media, no matter if they're left or right, have been very, very intensely preoccupied with this presidential election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton not only because it's been this huge circus routine that we've seen. I mean, it's been really something over the past year and a bit. And also based on the fact these are the two most, I I guess you can sort of look at it this way, these are the two candidates who many people think were the best of the worst to come in, or in some cases, the worst of the worst to come in. Like, like these are just two major party candidates. I I think that both the Republicans and the Democrats have picked much, much better candidates over the past, but... Again, that's sort of me, and I would obviously be labeled as a mainstream conservative, so naturally I wouldn't be happy with someone like Trump. Yeah. But, the, but the one good thing about Trump, and I think this is now being seen quite a lot during his speeches and during his, even his whole thing, well, the various things that he did in Mexico, he has opposed political correctness from day one. That's been one of his big issues, which even his worst opponent would say, you know what, on that part, I actually agree with him. And I always actually have, because unfortunately, there is a certain way we expect leaders to act. There's a certain type of mannerism that we expect them to portray. And there's certain type of speeches we expect he or she to actually say on a regular basis. Trump has, and I'm sort of using your words, but everyone else uses it, Trump has out-Trumped most people on that category. But, but isn't that refreshing? I mean, Rob Ford really was the leader of that. He really was ways. the one. I, I give credit to Rob Ford because he broke the barrier. But, but yeah. Trump has Trumpified it, and I'm, I'm thankful for it. Do I find him? I'm not endorsing him, so, so don't write in and write me. I'm not endorsing Trump. I think these two candidates are the worst of the worst, but I yeah. give him credit for fighting the system, for exposing the system, because I think he was right in his speech when he said, no one in Washington's doing anything. I'm the one who's actually saying, you know, that the truth of how to fix things. But if you look at the Washington elite, and Hillary Clinton is part of that, if, if folks are happy with the status quo, mm-hmm. then they're, gonna, they're going to vote for her. But if they're against, you know, the corruption and the inside trading and the deal making in the back room where everyone at the trough is okay, but nothing really changes for the American people. And there are a lot of them, Michael. They're going to vote for Trump. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. Look, I'm also on the record, and I've said this many, many times, (coughs) that I have major issues with Donald Trump and major issues with Hillary Clinton. I think they're both lousy candidates. I I think she's worse than him, though. Yeah. Because she disguises herself as someone who's trying to help, and she's got a terrible record. She's got a horrible record, and I know people like to praise all the things that she's done, and certainly she's been more involved in the political process than Donald Trump has. No one's questioning that. But if you really look at her track record from Benghazi to the email scandal to things she did during the health care debate when Bill Clinton, her husband, was was, uh, president, all those things together, plus a whole assortment of things I'm not going to waste time on. You can can look it up on the Internet from reputable sources. This woman... It would be destroyed by another Republican presidential candidate with ease, ease in November. And the only reason this race is close is because, unfortunately, Donald Trump has just stuck his foot in his mouth on so many instances and has made a lot of comments and statements against women, Hispanics, Muslims, you know, talking about building walls and various other things that have antagonized enormous amounts of the population of the United States and more than that have just frustrated so many people outside of the United States looking at this great country saying, well, here's Hillary Clinton who should be wiped off the face of the political map, and yet the Republicans put out the one person 
who really is going to struggle to actually do it. Other candidates could have done it quite easily. But look, that's neither here nor there. These are the two candidates they, that the United States has. And there's no question that Donald Trump in the last two to three weeks, mm. whether you love him or hate him, has looked a lot more like a president now than he ever did before. And that's the big difference. Yeah, and that pivot came uh, when he changed leadership in his campaign team. I think yep. it was a very smart uh, way to do it because he's playing with outsiders, outsiders playing with outsiders. And what they've managed to do is take Hillary Clinton's spike that she got after the DNC convention. Mm-hmm. And so her numbers, how they're now almost... They're almost now neck and neck, and we still have a long way to go in this campaign. And I think, you know, those debates coming up, I mean, they will be watched more than a UFC fight. Everyone's going to be watching it because he's not even training for it. He's just going to lay it all out there. That's an interesting contrast. I never thought to the UFC. I might steal that from you. but um, Knock yourself out. (laughs) But seriously, you're, you're absolutely right. Presidential debates, quite frankly, Alex, have not mattered very much in the grand scheme of things for many, many elections. Not just in the United States, but also in Canada, the UK, Germany, France, Italy, and every other country across the world. There used to be a time, obviously, when presidential debates, especially the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, those things actually had a profound influence on people, and they resonated in certain ways. The last few years, even though we've seen some good jabs here and there and some famous comments that have been made, you know, great uh, lines from people like Ronald Reagan, even Lloyd Benson during the VP debate against Dan Quayle, where he, you know, the whole JFK thing. Generally speaking, most presidential debates have just not been really all that impressive or all that interesting or have changed the perspective very much. In a very, very tight election, and once again, it appears that things are sort of closing up between Clinton and Trump again, it may turn out for the first time in God knows how many decades, each presidential debate they have, Clinton and Trump, could actually decide the election because a lot of people who are sort of sitting on the fences and are not quite sure what they want to do, which is usually about 10 to 15 percent of the electorate, may actually be swayed one way or the other based on the performance of one candidate over the other. So really, it's very, very crucial and incumbent for Clinton's team and Trump's team to prepare their candidates as much as they possibly can, because this election might matter in ways that are far, far different than previous presidential elections we've seen in the last little while. Get your popcorn. It's going to be a fun one. You got it. Michael, thank you so much. My pleasure, Alex. That's Michael Tobe, who uh, knows a lot about politics. So he's he's actually written speeches, you know, for Stephen Harper. So he knows the impact uh, of these moments. But I'm telling you, you know, Trump is rewriting the rules when it comes to presidential campaigns or politicking in general. And it will never be the same. And he's exposing the media and their bias and their slant. And I know a lot of people will say, well, you're a conservative. I am out there with where I stand. And I think that's a good thing because I do I do opinion now. When I step into a reporter beat, like covering a trial, I put on my reporter cap and you don't get the opinion. But you know where I stand. So you can tell me to shut up or you can tell me I don't buy it or you can agree with me. You know where I stand. So you can take the information and say, well, let me do my own digging. It's transparent. But you don't get a lot of that in media. So you may not know a political reporter's stance. You may not know how they're nuancing things or changing the tone of things because they don't put out where they stand. So a lot of times you're getting information that's slanted just the way you like it, or maybe you just don't know it. I just think transparency today in today's media is very important. So at least you know where someone stands, and then you can get your own information and balance it out. But wait, we haven't heard the last of Trump. So we'll, we'll keep watching that uh, reality show play out. But it's, uh, wow, it's an interesting time. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. report came out and it says that half of all grade 6 students are, are failing to meet the standard. And apparently they've been sliding for the past five years. So I got to ask, what's going on? Now, admittedly, I was horrific in math. I hated it. And I was awful at it. And I'm okay with that. I dropped it in grade nine. Yep. Teacher said I would never get it. My brain just simply not wired for it. And I think a lot of people are like me. I think a lot of kids. I know my sister was like that. We just could not. You could put anything in front of us and we just couldn't figure it out. So I think a lot of kids are either wired for math or are not, but they have to take it. And uh, today's math, to me, seems so, so complicated, having to show your work. I mean, if 4 plus 4 is 8, 
How do I have to show? Why do I have to show that? Why do kids have to show that? Why why have we made it so difficult for them to learn? I, I'm almost to the point where make alternative arrangements for kids. Like I did not use math in my life. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an engineer. I'm not an accountant. And it didn't hold me back. So maybe it's time that we teach kids to learn in different ways, put them in different courses, different ways of teaching numbers that they can use. But yes, I, I was not great in math, and I think a lot of kids find themselves in my position, but they still have to take it. And so they bumble their way through, and they get frustrated. And But nonetheless, we're seeing these numbers, and you know you have to find out, you know, what is it? Is it too complicated? And the report does show Apparently, teachers are not appropriately or properly trained to teach it. So maybe it's too complex for them. And the other part of the report is that kids are so stressed out, they just simply get so much anxiety, they shut down. They're not able to work through it. So let's find out what it is about today's math that is causing so much problem. Let's bring in Dr. Paul Bennett. He is a, with Schoolhouse Consulting. Good to have you, sir. Good afternoon, Alex. What is it about math? What is it about today's teaching of math, you know, that we're seeing so many grade six uh, kids failing? It's a direct question with a complicated answer, <laughs> but I'll do my best to be succinct. We're making it more complicated than we need to, as you uh, indicated in your own experience and from what you've observed talking to young people and children today. Um, but we've also lost sight of how important it is to uh, start with the basics um, I like to use this metaphor that um, teaching math is a bit like um, building a ladder or climbing a ladder, that you need to look at it as something that's cumulative. You build skills and you build confidence after mastering a few uh, operations, and then you move from one, um, one step up the ladder. What is going on today is with discovery math and um, the current a methodology that's being used across Ontario, students are thrown in about the second or third rung and asked to begin solving problems. They just don't have the basic math competencies and skills and the knowledge base to begin to solve the problems that are being presented to them. The result is that over the last um, 15 years, there's been a steady decline in results. And I have all the data, if you'd be interested in reviewing just how much of a slide there has been. I'm so bad at math, I wouldn't even be able to figure out your data. I mean, I mean, really, I just wasn't wired for, for numbers. I see it and I shut down. And I think a lot of kids like me just see it and just can't do it. And so why would they change? Like from the good old-fashioned 2 plus 2 is 4, 10 plus 10 is 20. Why would they make it more complicated? Well, because a lot of the teachers who have been drawn to math education aren't really math specialists. Um, they've either been thrown into it because they were teaching um, kindergarten, grade one, two, and three, and as part of that responsibility, you have to teach all the subjects. So they, they were, generally speaking, very few of them were from a math background. And as you recall, and it's still the case today, teachers have a lot of latitude as to how much time they spend teaching very various subjects. And if they're very strong in a subject, say, for example, reading or uh, something that they enjoy, like social studies, they, there's a tendency for them to teach more of that and less of the things that they don't feel comfortable doing. The other thing in Ontario is until um, this recent announcement, there's been a real disconnect in uh, terms of the need for specialist math teachers in the elementary grades. They're just, they just have not been there. So whether you were a teacher trying to do your best, teaching across all the grades, and you weren't really strong in math, or you, had, uh, you hadn't, couldn't turn to someone in your elementary school who was a math specialist. So th gradually we're seeing advances there. But, you know, what really is shocking, Alex, to your listeners would be how much money is being yeah. poured into trying to make a difference and how little difference it's made so far. You know, uh, 2014, June, exactly, two years ago, the government announced $2 million for training math teachers. They put 1,000 teachers into up upgraded math skills. They've just announced $60 million yeah. to produce 60 minutes per day. And they're going to assign three math specialists to each school. Well, one of the things that's uh, we're talking about 250,000 students in, um, say, 
that are tested each year in the elementary um, division. What we're looking at here is, is uh, you have to begin to ask, is the, the approach right? Is it the curriculum? And uh, why isn't there more explicit instruction? I mean, there's this great fallacy um, that if you teach explicitly the concepts, you can't challenge the kids. On the contrary, you can challenge them to do much more complicated problems, and you can challenge them to do things, more exciting things, but they need to have enough of a background in math to, to feel confident. I think it's building confidence. We're not talking about turning back the clock. We're talking about um, doing the fundamentals much better than ever before. Let me uh, bring Frank into the conversation because he may have a comment or a question for you. Hi, uh, hi, Frank. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me in. Um, I'm concerned about this in this regard in that uh, you have to have a prerequisite of uh, math when you go into the math and sciences should you go on to university. Um, Children, I presume you're talking about the grade school level, perhaps? Grade six. Uh, Grade six. Well, Mm -hmm. of course, this is where it all starts, and I'm I'm a firm believer in what I call mind expansion. You wondered why you took poetry in school. You wondered why you took Shakespeare. You may have wondered why you take algebra. That is a process of, of, of pressing the mind, mind expansion, so you'll learn how to, how to get it, to, to solve it. And to, to, not to go on to the details here, but uh, the discipline of doing education has to be there. It's not that it's going to be the comfort zone. Uh, society requires certain skills based upon uh, your learning as you got to where you are. And you have to have, I would tend to think, uh, persevere with math. Maybe there is not enough of the... Uh, uh, emphasis put on children, look, at you can do this. Now, I've always used this uh, phrase in my time and being in, in sort of like the uh, side of the engineering faculty, is that the hardest thing in the world is what is not known yet. Research finds it, the t- wouldn't you agree? This is the thing. We don't know an answer yet. Take the, high, the hardest, if you want to call it this, uh, type of math, let's say calculus, we have, there, there are answers to the, to the, uh, to the, um, uh, question to the uh, the challenge of of doing a calculus uh, um, assignment, but if you can't get it, you keep trying. You keep trying. So what I'm saying here is, perhaps these children are not uh, reinforced by the attitude of sticking with it. Uh, get your your nose into the grind and work hard enough. The teacher is only the conveyor of the information. The practice is in the is in the student, in the receiver, as to take that and do the best they can and work on it hard enough. You know there are people that have gone to higher education that said, gee, I would have never got here if it wasn't for the fact that I worked hard on this particular subject. Yeah, and, I- and, and thanks, for, thanks for your call, Frank. But, Paul, you know, I get what Frank's saying, but I think the problem is that the kids aren't getting the skills early enough on, and they just keep moving forward, and so they don't have the, the skills to do that problem solving, so they're just simply getting turned off. That's exactly right, and Frank is is accurate in the sense that, um, you know, in the early years, there are certain things they have to master, and we know what they are. We know that they need to have tremendously developed skills in math, computation, mental computation. There's always going to be a need for it. And you hear people saying, we don't need it, you've got a calculator. But when your calculator doesn't work, you're you're feeling pretty naked. So I think there's always going to be a need. And the other thing is there are some very fundamental things in life. Uh, it's called um, math literacy, mm-hmm. and you have to be able to do them. They have to be functionally literate in math, if we want to use that term. So we've got a real serious issue because there's been an erosion of those skills. But it's a fallacy, I think, to say that you can't teach the fundamentals in an exciting and engaging way. I am uh, quite friendly with uh, John Mighton who is the creator of Jump Math. And just to talk to John and to see how he uses the combination of mastery of the basic math facts as a fundamental, and then he uses that as a jumping-off point. You bring all the students along, build their confidence, and then you challenge them with exciting things, even the term Jump Math. And, of course, that's not something that the Ontario uh, curriculum welcomes. They, they, they're not really favorable to Jump Math. We, we need to get rid of discovery math. We need to root it out (laughs) wherever it exists, because it's a very destructive um, uh, force in our school system. 
And it's essentially being promoted by people who aren't math specialists. Yeah, I mean, look, in my day, um, it, it seemed to be that there was a bit more outside-the-box thinking. My teachers knew I was struggling. They identified the problem. There was a, a thought that maybe there was a dyslexia with numbers where I was just never going to get it. So instead of beating me over the head day in and day out, they found other avenues that I could go. Clearly, I wasn't going to be a doctor, didn't have any interest in being a scientist, but I was able to get equipped with the education I needed because I went into something that I was wired to do. And I, I worry that today's children don't have that outside-the-box thinking in education where instead of, like, punishing some kids who are never going to get it, find a way to educate them and equip them and move them forward. We have to use the best methods, and we have to use have a curriculum that is advantaging them and making it easier for them. That's number one. We also have to support those who are struggling and ensure that they improve. I think there's also a fallacy that if you test uh, children across the board, that you... Uh, you, you don't worry about the ones that are lagging. Now, on the contrary, what you do is you identify the areas you need to improve and you're paying more attention to those students. You know, there's a movement afoot now to broaden the range of student success. It's being promoted by a group called People for Education in Toronto. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're, uh, they're actually undermining efforts to try to improve math and, and, uh, and English um, literacies and uh, science, of course, is tied in with this, because they're trying to broaden uh, the the uh, metrics and trying to evaluate things that no scientist, social scientist today believes can be measured. And so uh, we do have to broaden what we term success, but there's a couple of fundamentals that are are never going to really change. Um, I've been very much involved in studying and writing about coding which is introducing elementary uh, computer science. And looking at it carefully, and you know something, you're not going to go very far in coding if you don't have some basic math knowledge and skills. You're going to be, it's going to be another example of how discovery learning can lead you nowhere. I would have to think, you know, Dr. Bennett, that parents are going to push back on this because the parents are also frustrated because they're the ones who have to help their kids with the homework. And if you look at it, it's very, very complicated. And I think a lot of parents are feeling like, you know what, I've had it. And these numbers will, uh, you know, maybe push them. These stats of of the failure rate may push them to say, you know what, enough. Yeah, I I know you're using the term failure, but I don't use it. It's 50% of the students aren't meeting provincial standards. And keep that in mind. That's across a whole battery of things. I'll give you an example. It's their spatial understanding. It's their ability to estimate. It's their ability to solve problems. These are like, when you talk about, you know, standardized testing and you you reduce it to that clinical uh, term, you forget that it's actually measuring a battery of different ranges of things. And what is alarming is the overall level of competence is declining across all of those different measures. Yeah. Like you would expect, you know, maybe their um, critical thinking might improve in math, and maybe their problem-solving might improve in math. Well, their problem-solving isn't improving in math because they don't have the actual core knowledge to solve those problems, or they're really out to sea when they're thrown into a, a very complicated problem. And I'm not one who... And I'm not really back to the basics. I think we can, we can learn. And uh, cognitive science, Dr. Daniel Willingham of uh, the University of Virginia, one of the world's leading cognitive scientists, is absolutely adamant about this. Mathematics is cumulative, and you do need to build a lot th- along that ladder. Yeah. Now, those who were promoting math, like Marion Small and those behind the Discovery Math Movement, they do all kinds of workshops, and they introduce concepts that make it palatable for non-specialist uh, teachers to teach math, but they're not really helping the kids in the end. Well, we'll stay tuned, but thanks so much for your insight. I really appreciate it. Oh, my, my uh, pleasure. Thanks for calling on me. That's Dr. Paul Bennett, uh, who is in Schoolhouse Consulting, so has, you know, obviously a lot of inside knowledge of what is going on and why we're seeing these problems. I want to bring Catherine Swift into this conversation. She's with Working Canadians. Hello there. Hi, Alex. You know, it's interesting because my last guest, Dr. Bennett, you know, one of the, the things that shocks him most is the amount of money this province is just continually throwing into something that's clearly not working. 
totally true. I couldn't. I, I just heard the last little bit of your interview. Yeah, there, sixty million I, bucks are going to continue throwing. It's it's outrageous. Uh, you know, when we think back to the McGinty days, let's not forget this government's had thirteen years now. It was actually fourteen. I guess it's closer to fourteen. Anyway. They've had a long time to, uh, you know, to, to get things under control in many respects, not simply education, but of course education is hugely important. And they have no one to blame but themselves. McGinty, back in the day, who, who, dug, who started to dig the hole that Wynne is now making deeper, uh, he, he was the education premier. Well, you know what, McGinty? You should be ashamed of yourself. The education premier with the kind of results like this, what, a, you know, what an absolute disgrace but uh, Kathleen was an province. education activist, so you've got two premiers who are supposed to be yeah. the education premiers, and we are seeing programs that just aren't working. You know, and, and this report that came out, Catherine, points out that teachers are not trained uh, in some parts adequately to, to teach the kids. Which is outrageous. I, I, I remember back to the Liz Sandal days when she was education minister, because there was a few years ago when some other data came out that showed how terrible, you know, students were doing on these, on these various testing measures, particularly math. And she said, and this, this blew my mind, she said, well, you know, a lot of these teachers aren't trained to teach math. And she thought that was a legitimate answer to the question. So really? how are they getting hired? They're not, or they're not prepared to teach math? Then, you know, shame on you. What an, what, a, and the, what killed me is she thought that was a logical answer to the, the question of why kids are doing so poorly on math. This 50% not achieving these standards is, is totally outrageous. Parents said, well, everybody, you know, it's, it's our children are our future, corny cliche that that is. If they're not getting something as essential in our modern world as math, what the heck is going on? And yes, we're spending, we taxpayers are spending mega bucks. Yeah. Teachers are much, you know, very, very well compensated for working nine months of the year. Uh, we have the teachers unions that, you know, they can't cash their checks quickly enough from this provincial government. And I mean, I, the unions are part of the problem. They, they fight uh, accountability on the, on the teachers front. Uh, they fight the fact that, you know, when, when they want to test teachers and stuff, they're all against that. Well, this is the result you get, folks. We spend a lot of money for very, very poor outcomes. So we've got a number of students who are not getting the, the education they need, but yet, and I point to the to unions, you know, we don't reward our teachers based on a performance Precisely. agenda. They just get the automatic raise. So does that need to change? Of, well, I, I would say it, it would have to, it should have happened years ago. We'd be getting different results today. Well, unions anywhere are all about totally taking uh, a focus off performance. Seniority is what rules. doesn't matter how useless you are uh, in whatever capacity you're working in. Seniority counts, not quality. And in a, in a private company, of course, eventually the, the company either goes down or they get rid of that person because they just can't function. In government, unfortunately, uh, this incompetence seemingly can continue you know, almost forever. And we, we, taxpayers in Ontario should be ripping their hair out with the results, with this kind of result. And when we have these governments that bend over backwards to accommodate unions at the expense of the rest of us, and at the expense of kids, yeah. how is this doing kids any favor when they can't do something as fundamental to our modern workplace as basic math? Yeah, no, I tend to agree. And Catherine, thank you. I knew I'd get uh, some, some good information from you. Catherine Swift, thank you. Thank you, Alex. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.